Welcome to the Tamarin Learning Podcast, where host Dr. Kirby Ross-Plock speaks with experts on many topics relevant in the ultra-high net worth family wealth management space. Kirby is author of several books, including The Complete Family Office Handbook, and shares her expertise consulting with families and family offices. Kirby is also the founder of Tamarind Learning, an online wealth education platform that develops practical, foundational learning programs for beneficiaries to help them prepare for responsible stewardship of wealth. In this episode of the Tamarind Learning Podcast, I welcome back David Gwynn. He's a leading attorney at Withers Worldwide and also the U.S. Commercial Practice Group leader. David also authored Chapter 7 on compliance in the family office in the Complete Family Office Handbook, second edition. In this podcast, we talk more about the family office exemption, compliance in terms of beneficial ownership reporting, record keeping, compliance policies, and privacy. David, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Kirby. Great to be here. David, can you tell us a little more about what regulations are currently affecting family offices and how they're managing those regulations? Sure. So the the questions we get asked uh, most frequently by clients are questions dealing with um, you know their qualification under the family office exemption. So do do I get to skip being registered as investment advisor? Um, questions about beneficial ownership reporting. So when when do I have to disclose to the public my ownership interest in in securities? Um, then we have questions about privacy. Um, and uh, just overall record-keeping requirements. And if we go dig dig deeper a little bit here, can you also just share with people listening in, what are the requirements uh, for the family office exemption? Sure, so there's two two overall arching requirements. One is that the family office needs to be owned and controlled by the family. And secondly, the family office can only, only serve in an investment advisory capacity anyway, uh, entities and individuals that qualify as family clients. Um, so, you know, one of the questions we get asked about frequently, for example, is um, I want to do some type of, you know, uh, record keeping, reporting, uh, performance reporting for a non-family member. Can I do that? Of course you can because doing that type of, I'd like to say math is not a regulated activity. Mm-hmm. If you're simply crunching numbers for people, that isn't a regulated activity. You can provide that to anyone. Um, so we get a fair amount of questions about what type of service can I provide and who can I provide it to. Mm-hmm. Um, we also still get a fair number of questions about who is or is not a family client. So you know, as people's families change, um, whether or not someone qualifies as a family client, we got an interesting one not too long ago where a client called, and in their case, they had a former family member. So a former spouse, and they were asking whether the children of the former spouse were family clients. And interestingly, it depends on when those children were born. So if they were born during the time that the former spouse was a spouse of a family member, then they do qualify. If they were born after that time, they don't qualify. And to be honest, I'm not really sure that's where the SEC intended that to end up, but that's, if you look at the rules, that's where it ends up. So I mean, there's still interpretation questions that are coming up that that aren't specifically dealt with in the rules. 
That's really interesting. I mean, it is very complicated when you think about that level of ownership and offspring as it relates to who's a family client. Are there any exceptions, any unusual exceptions to the family client definition um, that might end up being allowed if they're not family? Yeah, so there's an ongoing question about the extent to which in-laws um, will be allowed. Um, so there was a uh, there was some lobbying going on for a while to add in-laws. So let's say that it's your family office. Your husband is a family client because he's married to you, but your brother-in-law isn't in the same lineal chain, so you couldn't offer services to your brother-in-law. Um, there was some lobbying uh, going on to try and get in-laws included. That didn't um, come to fruition, but there are some no action letters out there um, asking for specific relief based on a specific set of facts and circumstances. Um, so there may be some movement in, in that regard. Now, the, the other part about the family office exemption is the ownership and control requirement. Mm. Um, and when we say a family office has to be owned by family entities, that's the technical term under the rule, it's important to remember that can include key employees. Um, so you can have a key employee that owns a piece of the family office or owns, you know, part of a investment vehicle that the family office advises. Um, but those people cannot control the family office. The family members need to control. Um, and the, the FAQs that came out shortly after the rule really focused on the board of directors. Um, so we were, we originally were always telling people, you know, at least a majority of the board of directors or a similar governing body like board of managers, if it's an LLC, need to be family members. Um, we've become a little bit more comfortable in some cases with moving those types of controls to the ownership level. So we might not have a board of directors that you know, is consists primarily of family members, but we may have taken a lot of the rights that would normally be exercised by the board of directors and move them back to the ownership level. Because there are, there are, you know, various planning techniques where you don't really want family members to be in control of an entity like the board of directors, so. Well, and I think that's a really interesting area to delve a little bit more deeply into. I mean, you talked about record keeping as being a really important, um, practice as part of compliance and tell us more on how you see record keeping marrying to right demonstrating control um especially in in this circumstance so it's a, that's a great question because we you know I, I like to approach these things as if the documents i'm drafting are an exhibit so uh -huh. um you know when we create a, an llc agreement for a family office for example we we draft into the document itself the requirements as to ownership and control so that it's a requirement for the entity to meet those standards not just that it happens to be that you meet them but the document itself requires you to so we might say for example um you know you have to have the board of directors must consist of a majority of family members or if there are an even number of family members and non-family members a family mom, family member must have a casting vote so it, it's baked right into the terms of the agreement itself. Um, and that way, if anyone comes knocking on the door, it's easy for you to show them, of course I comply, my documents require me to comply. And you were telling me earlier about some new um, influences that our current state and particularly virtual family offices 
Talk to us a little bit about compliance policies and what is new in the family office space. So, you know, a lot of family offices, let me start with a general general observation about compliance policies. A lot of family offices don't think they need compliance policies okay. because they're not subject to a, a regulatory compliance regime. But I think that's sort of missing the point. I mean, the family needs to decide what's important to them, and then they need to draft the compliance policies to deal with that. So, for example, one of the things we spend a lot of time on, you know, many families are concerned about their privacy. Um, so we will draft compliance policies about who must sign off on disclosures in a subscription agreement, because we don't, you know, we don't want someone who doesn't understand the family's desire not to disclose fact X, Y, or Z to the world at large filling out subscription documents without having somebody check them. So we want the compliance policies to be tailored to what the family is concerned about. Um, you know, we have a lot of compliance policies as well about who has the ability to move money. Um, you know, it's, it's just, it's good common sense to have checks and balances in place. Um, you know, I'm sure everyone trusts their employees, but you don't want to put anyone in a position that, you know, um, you know, puts them in a place where they could they could benefit from some wrongdoing. So putting compliance policies in place that avoid that. You know, as we've gone into the, the COVID-19 world, this was already happening to some extent, but it's happening even more now. Um, having compliance policies that deal with both the virtual world and multiple locations is mm. really important. Um, so figuring out how you're going to deal with those things um, and, you know, requiring, for example, that you know, all documents must be stored in a, you know, accessible electronic location. Um, you know, the virtual world is, is making electronic record keeping much more important. I think those are all really um, important areas. I mean, do you want to talk a little bit more about why privacy is oftentimes an issue potentially for compliance and compliancing in a family office and why families obviously want to not have as much information out there to the general public. Yeah, so I think there's really two two main drivers of the privacy concerns. One is a desire not to disclose too much information about the wealth holding structures. Um, so you know, a lot of these uh, beneficial ownership reports, for example, require you to go up the chain, um, getting to an ultimate beneficial owner. Um, so for families who have a concern about disclosing that level of information, you know, to, to whoever it may be that they're, you know, they have an offshore structure and they don't want, you know, their home government to to understand exactly how their holding structure works, um, or it could be a creditor issue, but we'll come up with specific um, structuring and reporting ideas that are designed to protect that type of information. So, you know, we'll create a structure that allows us to stop at some point um, going up the chain before you get to the, you know, the very top, but still comply with the rules. So there, there's that concern. And then, as you would suspect, there's also the concern about people just not wanting the general public to know what they own and how much they're worth. Um, so um, we do a fair amount of work with um, a institutional investment manager filing, which I call it 13F. Um, and there's the ability to claim uh, a personal holding exemption. 
So if the filing would disclose the ownership of securities by a natural person, a trust, or an estate, you can claim confidential treatment for the actual securities. Um, an, an interesting way in which the family office rule has affected other things, um, we have been successful, for example, in getting the SEC staff to agree to expand the personal holding exemption by saying, well, if it, you know, if this filing would identify um, the ownership by a group of identifiable people, natural persons or trusts, then you should afford the same type of you know, confidential treatment to that information as you would if it were a single individual. So we've, we've been filing on behalf of family offices saying you know, their holdings as a whole, because it's identifiable to a family, um, should be afforded confidential treatment. You, you get into some, some interesting questions about interpretation there as well, because a lot of times the question of whether a foundation would you know, knock you out of the ability to mm. claim because that's not among the types of entities that were listed in the in the personal holding exemption. So uh, we have to deal with that sometimes in, in dealing with that question. So for the family office that doesn't have a chief compliance officer, um, what advice or what wisdom would you share about compliance in your office and and the merits of you know maybe working with an outside person in compliance? Yeah, I mean, even if you don't have someone who's designated as a as a chief compliance officer, and I would say probably most family offices don't, um, mm -hmm. you should, I mean, at least no one who has that title, um, you know, you should make it clear who in the organization holds responsibility for different things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I do think it's probably in a family office best interest to work with an advisor, whether it be a lawyer or a compliance consultant, to come up with a policy. Um, you know, again, you need to be a little bit careful because you don't want a policy that's overly burdensome. Sure. Um, you know, you wouldn't want to go, for example, and take a compliance policy for a fund manager off the shelf and say, mm -hmm. well, this is this is for me. Because it's just going to contain a lot of stuff that isn't relevant to family offices and frankly won't include some of the things that are relevant. So, you know, it's not going to include the same type of um, concern about privacy as you would want to have in a family office compliance policy. This has been incredibly helpful. David, thank you so much for being here today as our featured guest on the Tamron Learning Podcast as your host, Kirby Rossblock. It's been another extremely helpful and relevant uh, topic here, family office and compliance. We're really appreciative. David was the author of chapter seven of the Complete Family Office Handbook. And we look forward to reading more about how to keep your family office compliant in this new day and age. Thanks again, David. Pleasure to Thank have you. you here. Thank you, Kirby.